Hi Nicole, welcome to Network Capital. We are very excited to host you today. Summer uh, and I are both uh, part of Network Capital and also now Global Shapers. So we are very excited to tease out the mental models uh, of uh, different leaders, how they think, why they do what they do. Could you get us started by telling us who you are and what do you do? Hi, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to have this conversation with you. I, my name is Nicole Schwab. I work for National Geographic Society on a campaign called the Campaign for Nature. And this campaign aims to raise awareness on the urgent need to protect nature and to protect a minimum of 30% of the planet by 2030. Okay. And uh, you're also an author, right? Yes, I'm also an author. I published a book called The Heart of the Labyrinth, uh, which is a fiction, but it's really also talks about our relationship with nature and why we need to reconnect to nature from an emotional point of view. Uh, so I, for me, it's just a, a different way to pass the message. I'm very passionate about nature, about the earth, and I feel that art and fiction writing, movies are a wonderful way to raise awareness and to pass the message in a different way than a work that's more academic or more scientific. They're very complementary. So tell us about uh, your, how this passion originated and how has your journey been from, say, as a child studying in Geneva, is that right? To being an author come somebody who works at mm -hmm. the National Geographic. So I grew up in Switzerland and I would say I spent half of my time in the mountains. So I grew up very much in, uh, in nature. Um, you know, Switzerland in the mountains, not very crowded. I mean, you probably everyone has, uh, has images. And here in India, we know that from Bollywood, um, you know, you have these images of pristine Swiss Alps. Well, that's, that's where I grew up. So I have a very strong connection with nature from a very early age. And still now I try to spend a lot of time in the mountains because I just love being there and the glaciers and it gives me a lot of energy and a lot of a lot of inspiration and so on this side of well-being and balance I would say that time in nature has always been really essential for me so I grew up in Switzerland uh, but I didn't study there I studied in the UK and and in the US and I uh, my journey kind of combined a scientific background I said I'm a biologist and then I did a master's in public policy because I felt that um, I didn't want to follow a strictly scientific career, but I wanted to be able to use the knowledge I had gained for more of a policy and a systemic perspective. And I would say that I, you know, I've done a lot of things and I, that I probably would not have expected uh, in terms of all the different types of jobs I had or the different roles and even different sectors. But I was always driven by this passion about being of service and I would say even of service um, to society but also to the earth so kind of this connection between all forms of life and of course humanity is one part of it but kind of making sure that whatever I did was always purpose-driven I'm a very purpose-driven person and um, and that's been I think the guiding thread throughout the different stages of my life that is quite intriguing um... Can you tell us a little more about your work with the National Geographic and 30 for 30? What your vision is and uh, how do you plan to enable the key stakeholders in this? Yes, so we know that in order for us to continue to benefit from what we call ecosystem services, so this is, these are really the services that nature provides us. So when we think about water, when we think about fresh air, when we think about food, 
All of this requires nature to be healthy, to be in a state of balance. And we know that we need half the planet in what we call a natural or semi-natural state. So that means ecosystems that are functioning, bees that are pollinating the crops, topsoil that is full of nutrients, um, you know, trees that can capture water so we have uh, a stable water table and so on. And the problem is that we have been degrading nature at a very rapid rate and this is of course a product of development, a product of urbanization, um, agriculture, infrastructure and today we are in a place where only 45% of all ecosystems are still in a natural or semi-natural state. So we know we need half the planet and we are already at less than half. So with the Campaign for Nature we're trying to raise awareness on this and also on the fact that we urgently need to protect the nature that is left. Today, we have 15% of land and 7% of oceans that are protected. So what do I mean by protected? Um, protected means a protected area. So it can be a national park. It can be a marine protected area. Essentially, it's a place where you cannot have any extractive activities. So you're not going to have, you know, cut down the trees for timber. You're not going to have mining. You're not going to have big infrastructure projects and there's obviously different levels of protection there's different systems for example you can have areas that are managed by communities and there's different models in different countries now with the campaign we're trying to raise awareness but also to work with governments because next year is going to be a very important year in 2020 the countries will come together at the un convention on biodiversity and when you look back in 92 was the first the, the earth summit in rio which was really the first large environmental conference where all the countries came together and since rio the discussions on climate have been gaining a lot of traction and um, i mean it's it's a, it's uh, it's really good that they did and we arrived at the paris climate agreement now the whole conversation on biodiversity has until recently been really left in kind of a silo and people don't even understand what we mean by biodiversity. It's very technical, but essentially... But what does it mean? You should tell our yes, audience. Yes, so biodiversity means the diversity of life. So it means the abundance of species, right? And not just the, the figure species that we, we love and that we protect like the tigers or the elephants, but also the, the worms, the you know, the pollinators, the bees, the so all this wealth of life, all the different sorts of plants that make up an ecosystem, that make up a forest. And the problem is that um, it's, a, it's a very complex balance, but we need all these species for the ecosystems to function. So as I said before, you know, if we want to continue having nature providing us with water, essentially, and food and air, I mean... Um, you know, we, we breathe the, the, the oxygen that's produced by trees, ultimately, right? So we need nature to survive. And we have to really become aware of this and to also become aware of the fact that we need to um, protect nature and to enable nature to continue to restore itself and to provide for us. And until now, we've been in a mindset of living on a, on a planet with limitless resources where we have just been taking we have been extracting resources. We've been taking, taking, taking as if there was not an end. We have to switch our thinking 
from being a species, you know, a human species that is consuming to a species that is a regenerative species. So how can we give back to the earth? How can we, in everything we do, think about the impact and think that we want to act in a way that will allow nature to keep providing for abundance? So I can give you a very specific example, for example, um, on oceans, right? So... Uh, three quarters of the fish stocks of the world are overfished and um, or at capacity and we know that if we continue with current trends the fisheries will collapse so this is really I mean either we're in the mindset where we're taking as much as we can until it's over and then we're going to have a serious problem because a billion people in the world rely on fish as their main source of protein um, or we start to think now in this different mindset to say we can replenish the fisheries like we can provide it's not a question that we cannot do this but it requires a mindset where we say okay if we protect and we have models we have case studies that show this that if you protect a certain area and create a marine protected area in in critical places you can regenerate a fish stock and the fish move they are going to go out of this marine protected areas and the bi what we call the biomass of fish um, in some cases can increase sixfold outside of the marine protected areas. So ultimately, the fishermen, and uh, they are going to ben benefit from this. So it's, it's really a mindset to say it's not about, you know, conservation, like we protect this versus development. This is going to prevent us from, develop, from developing. But it's about saying we can <coughs> do both. Like we can find a way where we can continue to, to develop. We can continue to provide livelihoods to people because it's essential and usually the people who are at the forefront of this are the most vulnerable are the people who are the poorest so we can continue to create systems whereby we can benefit from nature but in a sustainable way so it's not that in 10, 10 years it will be over and then what right. are we going to do then your training as a biologist when you began did you think that your career will shape up the way it did uh, no, I didn't. Um, I, because I, I was focusing on molecular biology, so it's very much lab work and lab research. And um, Why did you take it? Because I was fascinated by, by life and by how life functions. You know, how, how does it work, like the cells? And uh, I just found it really fascinating to understand better the natural world and, and even ourselves as human being, uh, beings. And um, yeah, so it was really more out of passion. And then I started... Passion cultivated from high school. Um, I would say more maybe from my time, you know, how I grew up grew and up. my relationship with, with nature. Um, because high school, I mean, you, you know, you touch all sorts of different projects. Um, so, yes, it was more in terms of that. So then you started molecular biology, then public policy. How did writing come into the picture and how did public policy propel you towards writing or not? Mm -hmm. So I spend a lot of time writing for work, but writing scientific articles, you know, or public policy documents. And um, so I, I did a lot of writing, but since actually I was a child, I was writing short stories and poetry and since I was very, very young. And I remember, I think when I was uh, 16, or I read um, Rainer Maria Rilke's Letters yeah. to a Young Poet. And there's a sentence in there. How old were you then? I don't know, maybe 16. Oh, lovely. And there was a sentence in there that says, so he's writing this, these letters to this young poet, and the young poet asks, how do I know if I'm a writer? And, um, and, he, and the answer is, 
ask yourself in the middle of the night, must I write? Like, does my actual existence depend on this? And I read this and I thought, well, I am a writer. I mean, this is very clear. I don't know what I'm going to do with it or when I will write. And, um, but it was very clear to me that one day I would, I would write a novel or a, some form of book. And, uh, but that I wanted to wait until I had something to say and until I had sufficient life experience to actually translate that into a message in the form of a story. That's very fascinating. I want to go back to the nature conservation bit. And what fascinates me is how your, uh, how your relationship with, uh, with nature growing up has actually evolved into what you're doing right now. Um, take me through this. You enjoyed, uh, you know, your company with nature, uh, you know, as, as did we growing up, but future generations may not. How do we bring urbanization, rising populations, urbanization, uh, the capitalistic structure that we live in, and the need for conservation together, where all three are in a balance? Yes, so I, I agree with you that having exposure to nature as a child is extremely important. And I came across recently a, a, a project by one of the young global leaders actually in Peru, um, who what he does is he works with children in, uh, in the city, in, in Lima, in places that are very urbanized, like you don't even have a park, you don't have trees. And these children are just don't have the opportunities to be exposed to nature at all. And what he's done is like he has reclaimed empty plots mm -hmm. and worked with, uh, with children, with schools, to create gardens where the children become responsible for a small piece of land and they can watch plants grow and they can understand the cycle of life. Right. And he was saying that in the places where you can't even do that, then the children, they're responsible for a plant, right, in a pot in their home. So, I mean, of course, you know, when you go from the Swiss Alps to this, I mean, it's, it's a huge... Uh, distance right but the, I think the message here is is how can we make sure that children continue to be exposed to life because I think when a child puts a seed in the ground mm. and sees it grow and understands you know how this cycle of, of life works in practice it makes a big difference and why is it that if I can just fast forward a little bit why is it that there is such resistance to something that is so important uh, around the world and how can we overcome it? I think it's a very good question. I think that um, we, I, I feel that we're not very good as humans to, you know, assess kind of risks that are far out there and, and to, um, to act upon um, things that are maybe not immediately tangible for us. And I think that the problem with, with the natural world is that Yes, if you live outside, if you live, if you're a farmer, you know very well how, you know, the weather influences your crops. You, you have a relationship with nature. You understand the cycle. You understand that you need to make sure that you will continue to be able to, you know, um, to have fertility in your fields. And, and, and of course, you know, I don't want to talk about chemicals here, but I think there's, there's even a, a recognition now about how many of the systems we thought would work actually in the long run are not going to work for us. Right. Um, but I think that when you're in an urban environment, it's much more difficult because people are so removed from that. Right. And so when we talk about climate change and when we talk about, oh, you know, one million species are, ris are at risk of extinction, it's very difficult for people to understand what does that mean for me? 
right. you know and especially i would say in a context where people are trying to survive they're trying to improve their lives the lives of their families they're trying to maybe have an impact so when you introduce that dimension it can be very difficult for people to say okay i'm worried about this but what do i do about it yeah. so the two aspects one is the awareness of the actual urgent need to do something because there is an impact and i think for climate change it's coming but unfortunately it's coming very late it's coming at the time where we already have droughts and floods and and it you know weather patterns that are very unpredictable um and the longer we wait the harder it's going to be so for biodiversity that's why now there is there is such an urgency and people are still not yet aware of it and and the second dimension just to to um, to make that point is about action it's like how can we connect this awareness with something we can do Uh, David Attenborough said recently, he said, you know, you have this, to find this fine line between denial and despair. So first you have to be informed, but then if you don't think you can't do anything about it, you can fall into despair. So you need to have the tools and understand what you can do as an individual to act upon it. Right. You know, this uh, what you mentioned about long-term projection, there's a psychologist, Dan Gilbert, who writes about it. What makes us unique as human beings is our ability to look forward to life 20 years 30 years and place ourselves there yeah. to just visualize ourselves 30 years from hence we're the only species who can do that but the thing is that when we do that projection uh, towards the future we miss out these little elements and which is why sometimes these tangible things are less obvious than they should be but you know i have uh, read your books i watched your ted talk i think that what you're trying to convey is a complex subject how do you deal with the incongruity as a writer? Like, what's the inner voice? How do you manage that? So, I think that's why uh, I chose to write a novel and not a, not, you know, a non-fiction book about that. Because I think that storytelling is very powerful. Storytelling does not need to be scientific or rational. You know, in storytelling, you can use metaphor. You can use, you can use the, you know, things that are even from like fantasy or um, yeah, other worlds, you can make associations. And we humans, we learn through story. I mean, that's how humans have learned throughout the ages. And I think storytelling has a huge importance still today, especially when it comes to complex subjects, to subjects where there is, there is no certainty, there is, there's so many pieces. And, but it's still a way in which we can communicate a message and we can raise people's awareness and touch them emotionally because I think that one of the reasons also why people may not be acting is that a lot of the information that is coming at us is very scientific right so so many you know a million species are at risk of extinction okay we've lost 90% of the large fish in the oceans well that's different from if I tell you a story or people see a movie where they are touched at their emotional level and ultimately we have to engage people's emotions if we want them to change which is the, which is the beauty and challenge of writing so how did you feel when you learned that this is being made into a movie did that make you nervous or excited or both well the way it happened is that I was contacted by a producer and so I wrote the screenplay and I think that was a really interesting process because it's all about 
translating so when you write a book you can you can write what's in the person's head you can write their thoughts you can use words when you're writing a screenplay you have to transmit the same information through image and you have to show emotion through image it's a very different process which is also why not many writers you know cross that line between fiction and screenwriting because they're just very different crafts but for me what was fascinating is that it forced me to really distill the essence of the message and to say okay what do i really want to transmit here and then how can i do that one of the key things i learned uh, as a filmmaker was that if it's not on paper it'll never be on the screen um what are some of the key things that are in your screenplay that you want the world to know maybe two three four what are the key most important things in that screenplay which you would like to tell the audience through this podcast mm. and also if i might add what is the difference in writing a novel and writing a screenplay like does that involve a mental shift of sorts Yes, I'll, I'll start with yours, and then because that's sure. related to what I said before. Yeah, it, it involves a mental shift. So let's say we're all three here sitting at this table, right? And I want to a I noisy wa- table at that with Delhi pollution at the background and somebody spraying other things. Yeah, that's right. So let let let's say that I want to say that Samar is nervous, right? I'm just taking an example. So I would, if I'm writing a novel, I would say he was sitting there, and in his mind, he remembered an incident where this and this happened, and he started to feel nervous about it and i could go on and on about the whole mental process happening right if i'm shoot if if i'm writing for a movie there's none of that so so i'm going to write a screenplay saying samara is sitting there and his foot is nervously tapping against the floor so that then when this movie is produced you know it's really about how the actor is going to behave and it's not going to be what's in his head but you will see by by the way he's sitting by his expressions that he's nervous so it's a very different way of writing it's i found it fascinating very challenging um for me because i i found it easier to <laughs> to do the the novel part um and uh, that's why i also wrote with someone who's a filmmaker because i think i i had to learn the the craft and so if i if i come to to your question about the key messages um so there's um there are two aspects in the story and of course you know the screenplay will continue to evolve uh because there's many iterations of screenplay so so who knows what will end up in the film but in terms of the key message i think one of them is around the fact that the heroine she goes into the amazon looking for her mother and she starts to see um the kind of destruction that has been wrought so deforestation the impact from mining oil spills like all the things that are happening and have been happening so in this journey this young woman uh you know from new york she goes into the amazon and she starts to see this and she starts to understand the parallel between the health of the planet and her own health and this whole parallel about the fact that the way we are treating nature is going to impact us and that if we want to be healthy we need a healthy planet so there's really this this awareness for her um about what's been happening in our relationship to the planet and the fact that she had been so disconnected that she couldn't see that anymore and that there is this need as we were talking before to reconnect with nature with you know mother nature um in this case because there's a whole play between her looking for her mother and then reconnecting uh with mother nature you know you mentioned david attenborough some time ago uh david attenborough in an interview with prince williams at at uh, at davos 
mentioned something that really fascinated me. He said that we do not realize the consequences of our actions. That if we fish in one part of the world, it has a drastic effect in the oceans on the other side of the world. It's like the butterfly effect. Um, you have raised this issue and have you know had crucial discussions at Davos about this. As you've educated yourself, what is the one most striking fact or challenge or opportunity uh, that you've come across that you would like the majority of the population that does not know about this to know? It's hmm. a good question. Um, I think um, I think what I started with at the beginning in terms of the actual degradation of the planet is probably what struck me most because if you look at you know, we look around and we see nature and we think, oh, everything's going well. I mean, oh, there's a bit of pollution, but, uh, you know, and we have all these facts, but we keep thinking that because there are trees, you, you know, nature is still there. And I think that for me, learning that actually only 45% of the planet is still not degraded, like it's still actually functioning in a way, um, in a healthy way, I would say, with the species and and that this is going down very fast because we keep developing. We have all these projects and infrastructure and, and you know, development and timber and fisheries. So... Or the scarier version is 55% has degraded. 55% has degraded, yes. And we only have, you know, under protection, 15% of land and 7% and of the oceans. And so to me, that was a big... Um, in a way, it's shocking because when you start looking at the trends, you know that if we don't do something now, it's going to get much worse. And then, of course, you know, this figure that came out this year that one million species are at risk of extinction. Um, and I think I read recently 20% of all species, and I guess known species, of course, we haven't, you know, there's much more to be discovered, but 21 in five of all species are threatened with extinction. And to think that this is because of humans, um, it, it puts a big responsibility on us because we're not alone on this planet. Absolutely, you know? what you can do about it. So tell us, uh, what is the most challenging and the most satisfying part of uh, doing what you do today? So I think the most challenging is to know all this information and to be constantly reading articles about how bad the situation is. Um, I think it's very important not to be in this place of denial and to be um, able to take in the, the facts. And I think that's also, um, yeah, that's the biggest challenge because when I was talking about being connected with nature, it means being emotionally connected. And we've been trying to be so rational and to say, oh, we have to not engage our emotions and not show our emotions. But I think we do. And that's what's going to make us change. So how can we open ourselves to feel what's happening? And when you do that and you really feel what's happening, it's overwhelming. It's really overwhelming. And that's to me, that's the biggest challenge, like to not stay closed and in the mind, but to say, OK, let's open up. Let's let this information really sink in. Now, the hope part, because that's very important as well, to me is meeting so many people who are doing incredible things. You know, people from people who, are, who have devoted their whole lives to one species, studying that species, how can they protect it, to people who are thinking about systems, about, you know, economic development, about how can we shift that so that there is no more this contradiction. How can we change the way we value nature? How can we embed it in the... the um, 
even in, into the financial world with the whole natural capital um, accounting. So what I, th I would say what gives me hope and what fascinates me is that I think we have an opportunity for massive innovation, but at a systemic level. You know, people today are talking about things they were not talking about 30 years ago, you know, about, you know, beyond GDP, right? Donut economics. So all these concepts of actually creating a system and an economic system that takes into account nature. Um, nature provides 125 trillion every year dollars, 125 trillion dollars every year in free services to the global economy. That's twice the global GDP. That means that to produce our current GDP, we're using twice that amount that we are not counting in free services. These free services are going to end. It's like there's, a, there's an end in sight. And so how can we create a system that embeds that, that takes that into the account? So the whole incentive structure for business and finance is aligned and is aligned to sustainability for our own benefit. Right. Um, doing what you do, there must be highs, there must be lows over the years. Who have been your mentors and how have they helped you uh, build up your mental models that have prepared you for today? So my father, I would say, has been uh, a mentor and he is uh, he's an incredible inspiration. I mean, he's 81 now. I don't know anybody who has that amount of energy even at 50. I think none of us can follow him, even, even being young. And he has a, a, you know, kind of this steadfast commitment, right? And I think that's been an example to me of how you can devote your life to a mission, a mission that's bigger than you, this capacity to always have the global perspective, to think in systems, to think about, okay, what is the experience of a person living in Bangladesh, you know, or in India? someone living in Greenland, in South America, in Switzerland, in Geneva, and to be able to, yeah, keep learning as well. Because even now when I see him, um, you know, in his meetings with, with some people, he's always asking questions. And I think that's very inspiring because we have to keep learning. It's, it's very complex and, and none of us can solve this alone, right? So it's all about how do we keep this open mind? So I would say that's been a, an inspiration from a very early age and, and still is. He, he really is incredible and I think the uh, the the urgency of the message and, and of the work that that's being done in this space shows shows the urgency of it shows in uh, in his energy levels too uh, I want to we have spoken about human behavior and human actions and how that's led to uh, degradation of, of, of mother nature I want to move to the other aspect of uh, of human behavior you know, we there's a lot of activism around the space. There's a lot of awareness-raising activities around the space, uh, which are obviously crucial. But how do we move from awareness-raising activism to action-oriented activism, uh, where we're actually mobilizing resources on the ground to achieve the goals for 30 for 30? Yes, so I think the activism has been very important to um, to allow us to even have the conversations about action, right? Because first of all, people need to become aware that this is urgent, it's important, we have to do something about it. So I would say this activism has been helpful, but now we need to go beyond. And as you say, we need to focus on solutions. I think what we need to do is because there are a lot of, I mean, there's two levels. One, there's a lot of examples of, you know, uh, models that are working like what I was talking about with marine protected areas on land there's a lot of models of 
community-based protection, of involving people, of agroforestry, of all these models that have been tested and have shown that it's possible to protect nature and um, ensure that people's livelihoods are preserved and that they can have an economic activity, that they can benefit from it. So sustainability is possible, we know it, and there are models. And so I think one of the things is to raise these models and to, to communicate about them and to kind of have a way to scale them, to to shed the light on them. So if the activists could, you know, there's, there's one part of saying, okay, how do we connect this whole movement of activism to the social entrepreneurs, the people on the ground, the people who've been working in this field, the environmentalists, the researchers for years, and how can we connect that so that this activism can then also showcase solutions that other people can pick up. So that's one level. I think the other level is at policy, and that's where we require political will. And that's why, you know, the UN Convention for Biodiversity is so important. We need the international community to come together and say, this is essential. And having the international framework is not everything, but it will be a starting point, just like the Paris Agreement, where countries can then be held accountable. Hmm. And this is so... So yes, and of course the two are connected, right? The political will is going to be connected to the fact that there is activism and there is people demanding um, action and proposing solutions. What do you, uh, you know, I'm I'm glad you brought up the UN Convention on Biodiversity. uh, And as we were sort of speaking about the broader steps we need to take, I want to sort of deep dive on on that convention particularly. what is it specifically that you hope to achieve? You know, obviously it will not be the only driving force. It's a companion agreement to the Paris Agreement. But with that agreement, it's it's one step forward. What do you hope to achieve with it? Yes, so the, the UN Convention on Biodiversity builds upon an earlier agreement um, and the, the, the targets, they're called the Aichi targets. Okay. And so the countries had already committed to a number of goals and targets in the area of biodiversity. Mm. Um, so in this new convention, there's going to be a number of elements. What we hope is that just like for the Paris Climate Agreement, mm. um, you know, everyone understand or mo- I mean a lot of people I would say most people who who are connected this f- to this field know that okay there's an agreement whereby we need to limit mm. the global warming to 1.5 degrees um, if possible and otherwise 2 degrees so it's kind of something that's easy to explain we want to have kind of the equivalent with this 30% of the planet protected. So it's it's something easy to understand. We need to protect nature, we need to protect the wild spaces, mm-hmm. and we need you know 30% of that by 2030 as a milestone towards half the Earth. Now, in the UN Convention, so we want all, all I think it's 192 countries, mm-hmm. to agree to this target being one of the key targets in this document. Now, this is obviously not going to be the only thing in this document. There's a lot of other elements which have to do with, you know, actually effectively managing these areas. How do we implement this? Financing. So there's a lot of other pieces which will be negotiated and which need to be in this. But the reason we're also focusing on on 30% by 2030, one is awareness raising. It's easy to understand, whereas a lot of the rest is very technical. Um, And second... Um, because it's a starting point around which we hope to, um, and we are, we've already started actually to mobilize a group of countries. The president of Costa Rica at the UN General Assembly recently in New York, 
he announced that there, he would be leading and inviting a high ambition coalition of countries. So this is a group of countries who really say we need high ambition, like we can't continue business as usual. Mm. We really need to do something now. And we as countries are stepping forward and saying, you know, we need 30% by 2030, among other things. So it's, it's kind of the starting point to mobilize countries in the lead up to the UN convention in October so that by the time we get there, there's already some kind of um, an agreement, at least by a large group of countries who say, yes, we believe this is essential and we support it. Who do you think is your strongest critic and how do you think you will make that critic into an ally towards this cause? So, I, you know, just like in the climate debate, um, I think... I don't want to name, you know, countries. Yeah, I don't mean uh, names specifically. <laughs> yeah. I, just, I mean yeah, yeah. nature of organization yeah. or entities. I think that, I think, I don't even know if it's critic, but I think the biggest challenge, and it's a real challenge, it's, it's, it is really a real challenge, is how to reconcile conservation of nature, which means you are leaving land aside. You are not touching it. You are not using the resources on it. So how do you reconcile that with development, with rapid urbanization, with population growth. This is a real challenge. And I think that's where, you know, I mean, you talked about criticism, but I, th I think that's where the resistance comes from and will come from to say, especially in parts of the world that, are, that have very high density population, very rapid population growth, rapid urbanization, say, how are we going to do this? How can we solve this? So and historically, we've been poor, that argument, right? Historically, exactly. we've been poor, yeah. we need to do this, the Western countries did it, so we must follow suit. Exactly. And that's also related to the financing question, right? right? To say, okay, and this is, a, you know, for other countries that are the places that still have large intact forests, primary forests, there's not that many countries in the world that still have that. And in the case where those countries are uh, not among the, you know, wealthiest country in the world, the question is, okay, we have these resources, we can protect them, but why should we bear the cost? Yeah. So there's a whole question, just like with climate, of financial systems are there mechanisms where there can be kind of a burden sharing because these are public goods these are global public goods and so they need to be managed on behalf of the whole planet it's not not on behalf of one country but that means that the financing mechanism must also be held by the global community and yeah. not by one country alone no absolutely yeah i want to build on that that was a very good question by the way i want to build on that a little bit also on human behavior, but specific to you, Nicole. Um, how do you maintain the calm and the, the rationale and the smile when you face very basic resistance, you know, on whether climate change is factual or not, whether bio, conserving biodiversity uh, is a fact of nature or not? Uh, pun not in any, but how do, you, how do you maintain the calm in, in those situations and how do you move forward from that? So to me, it's really always been about understanding, understanding the person in front of me, understanding their belief system and understanding also their needs. And I think that if we have an approach towards dialogue with this openness where we're not trying to, you know, it's a, it's a different way of engaging in a discussion. You're not debating. You're not trying to convince someone, oh, my ideas are better than your ideas. This just doesn't work. 
because then you're just pitching one person's beliefs against another person's beliefs and I don't think this works so I think that the only way is to really be have the capacity to listen and to understand where the other person is coming from Mm. and why they have formed the beliefs they have formed and from there you can then have a conversation not always Mm -hmm. but sometimes where you can address that person's concerns and beliefs and and explain the facts in a way that can be received because otherwise there is no receptivity you know if someone is closed they're just going to argue but they're never going to actually open up to really understand what you're saying so so i think we have a work to do to be able to meet people where they are and then bring bring them along a journey now that being said that doesn't mean that i don't get upset and i think that you know sometimes being faced with climate denial or things I also get exasperated you know but then I try to say okay how do I deal with my emotions so I'm not like throwing them onto the other person I just deal with them and then I try to find a solution and to say and in some cases you can't and so you have to focus on your allies and on kind of building coalitions building momentum and then in some places you can have a conversation Um, but I, I do think that this is in a world today that's becoming so polarized, you know, where people are so attached to their points of view and their judgments. I think it's becoming really even more critical yeah. that leaders develop this capacity for listening, for empathy. But that, and that doesn't mean you're, you're agreeing with the other person. Mm. It just means that you are creating a space where conversation is possible and where it's also possible to have differing points of view but with respect and then with looking at what, what, which is the outcome that we want and how do we get there. Yeah, a safe space for all voices. We're coming towards uh, the close of this interview. So a two-part question and maybe some of you have something else. Uh, what advice would you have given to your 18-year-old self professionally and uh, looking forward where you are today, of course, you need allies all around the world. What advice do you have for people who are trying to build a career, trying to save the planet? Uh, so what advice do I have? I think that um, I think that for many many of us who have had this passion, right, a real passion for something and and maybe sometimes you even see things or you see what could happen or um, I would say two things. One, there's a need for certain patience and for certain because sometimes we want to go faster than is possible and that's actually the driver and it's good, but it can create frustration. So I would say always keeping in mind, um, like the, the, the goal, but also having the perseverance and the patience to, to know that sometimes it takes longer. And at the same time, not to be um, phased in, or you know, distracted in the face of resistance or adversity. Because in my case, you know, I, I heard Greta speaking, uh, of course, at the UN mm-hmm. a few weeks ago. And I thought, oh, isn't this interesting? You know, when I was her age, I had some similar thoughts, right? And we, here we are 30 years later. Mm. And what, you know, that can create a lot of exasperation to say it, it's taken 30 years, we're still in the same place. But at the same time, kind of the importance to keep that drive, to not be distracted by resistance, by people who are not going to believe you, who are going to challenge you, who are going to say, you can't do this, this is impossible. Like to keep believing, to keep working at it. And as I was saying before, at the same time, to cultivate this capacity to have an open spirit and to have, to be able to face adversity, right? But with an attitude that's very calm and that, you know, where you're really always thinking about your outcome. And, and self-doubt, 
did it happen on the way? How did you deal with it? Of course, and I think I, I spent a lot of time working on you know gender issues, and I write about it in my book. And I think that um, that's something that I faced in my life um, as a woman, and I think that. Um, because of certain biases that we were exposed to as children as you know girls are growing up and you know role models and so on um there is self-doubt that creeps in and, and i know self-doubt is not you know it's not about gender right but i think in in my case i would say there's a particular angle and for a lot of women there's a particular angle to it that has to do with gender mm. because you are interrupted all the time and you know things things like that that you just have to get over um, but that are that do require this very very deep belief in yourself, and I think that it helps when you have a mission, because then it's not about you, really it's about this mission that carries you, and so you can become much stronger because you're serving on behalf of something else. Oh, absolutely, and be, being a part of and building communities helps. Yeah, I want to end with uh, one learning that I've had, and I want to leave that onto a question for you. You know, so as I've educated myself about sustainability and, and, and climate change uh, and uh, conserving biodiversity, I have found that, you know, a disaggregating framework of our daily lives uh, is very, very helpful. For example, how does our day look like from the time we wake up, the water we drink, the water we bathe with, consume, the food we eat, uh, the waste we generate and how we dispose it off, the transport we use. Each of these has a carbon footprint and, uh, you know, an extensive carbon footprint of that. Uh, and, you know, I have seen that that has sort of helped me make a little, some more intelligent choices on sustainability. What is sort of one learning of yours that, you know, you can impart to the listeners, which can turn into an, a sort of immediate action, even at a small level, if it can. But I think in terms of, if you think in terms of volume of people, you know, a small action can also move the needle uh, uh, widely, I think. Yes, I think that, um, you know, what you're saying is essential and that we can all make a difference. And I really mean that. But it's not just that we can, but it's that we have a responsibility to. Right. And we have a responsibility to do it in our actions, but also in our own lives and to lead by example. And that doesn't mean being perfect, because I think very often, you know, when you're an environmentalist, but you're still like driving a car or taking a plane, people discredit you and they say, oh, we can't listen to your views because you've just taken a plane. And it's like, well... Yes, I've taken a plane, but, you know, I'm, I'm doing all these other things in my life, right? Yes. To try to be consistent. I think it's very difficult to be 100% because, as you're saying, if you start to think about everything you do, every object you come into contact with, everything you consume, it's overwhelming, believe me, because I sometimes do it. It's completely overwhelming. Yeah. And then you're like, oh, this is impossible, right? So I think it's finding the balance, uh, but we need to take an action. And... A lot of people, you know, nowadays we're talking about this whole thing of, of eating meat, right? Eating less meat as one action. And I actually do think that if I would say there's two things you can do. One is to understand that every action you take, everything you consume has an impact. You are taking from the earth with everything you consume. Mm. How can you think about giving back? in equal manner because that's what we need if we're going to have a, a sustainable model so i would say one this awareness and trying to start to look at your day differently and to look to think about the life cycle of every single object you come in touch with so even if you don't do it every day to do it for a while as an exercise mm -hmm. and then the second i mean agriculture is one of the areas that has it's one of the five sectors that is the largest driver of 
nature loss in the world. Mm. And when you come to, you know, I mean, I mean, cattle farming, I mean, it's a huge, it has a huge footprint. Mm. And if we, you know, a lot of people say, okay, well, if the whole world went vegetarian, which I think in India, it's very easy to be a vegetarian, unlike other parts of the world, <laughs> it actually would have an enormous impact. Yeah. And people kind of belittle it and they say, oh yeah, that's not going to make a change, but it will. Yeah. So I would say, think about your food, and then think about your daily actions. And then three, of course, as a leader, think about what you can do as a leader to raise awareness or to pick up any of the, the aspects that we've talked about. There's so many possibilities mm. and we need innovation. We need enough, you know, creativity to find solutions right. um, to change the course we're on because we have to change the course we're on. Yeah, so well said. Nicole, I think um, this 30 for 2030 vision is so powerful. So let's do this. Let's have the same conversation every year since 2030. Absolutely. And let's see how this podcast evolves and then we'll take it from there. Look, your message, this conversation has been fascinating. I think I can speak on behalf of both Summer and I. But uh, it'll go out to about 100,000 people. Thank you very much for your time. And we really look forward to the next edition. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nicole.